2020, Iceland's parliament debated a bill to designate 40,000 square kilometers of Iceland's interior as a national park. Although the bill floundered, preventing the area from becoming Europe's largest protected wilderness, the ongoing debate raises important questions about the value of unsettled land. For issue 5 of Iceland Review, staff writer Eric Pomeranke delved into these questions. Unsettled. The Value of Wilderness Around the turn of the 10th century, a man named Thorolvur Mostrskek sailed from Norway to escape the tyranny of King Haraldur Fairhair, establishing his new farm in Thorsnes, a spit of land on the north coast of the Snifelsnes Peninsula. Thorolvur came ashore, and having surveyed the lay of the land, he walked along his new settlement with fire, marking the boundaries between his bixth or dwelling, and Obixth wilderness. This distinction between the secure, built-up world of civilization and the chaotic, unsettled realm of nature is the key to understanding Icelanders' view of the world and their land. In fact, the relationship between the human community and nature lies at the heart of many myths, religions, and art traditions throughout civilizations around the world. Despite this universal concern, however, the case of Iceland remains unique. The settlement of Iceland is the only historically documented colonization of genuinely empty land. These conditions also account for much of Iceland's popularity as a tourist destination. In a world in which urban sprawl has developed entire landscapes and pushed wilderness out to the edges of the map, the very distinction between wilderness and settlement seems to be collapsing. Wilderness as Capital in the years leading up to the banking collapse of 2007 to 2008, Iceland went through a period of unprecedented growth. Unlike the petro-fueled greed of other countries, the expansion of Icelandic capital went hand-in-hand -hand with green technologies like geothermal and hydroelectric power. Iceland has become internationally recognized for its commitment to environmentalism and the current administration's goal to reach carbon neutrality and complete the energy transition by 2040 is one of the most ambitious climate policies in the world. It may come as a surprise to outsiders that Iceland's green expansion has been a subject of controversy, with environmentalists saying that Icelanders treat green energy like others treat fossil fuels, a source of infinite expansion in a finite world. According to some, the goal of such green capitalists is to make sure every drop of water powers a turbine before it reaches the sea. Such a worldview sees the powerful currents of Golfos not as a confrontation with the sublime, but as a failed investment, a faucet left running. These tensions came to a head during the planning and construction of the Fljotsdalstöð hydroelectric dam in Kaurnjökull, an area within Vatnajökull National Park. Completed in 2009, this reservoir required an area of formerly pristine wilderness about the size of Manhattan Island to be flooded. The project was highly controversial and polarized Icelandic society to an unheard-of degree. The Kaurhnjukar controversy was a defining event for the political consciousness of modern Icelanders and can likewise be considered to represent a sea change in Icelandic attitudes towards wilderness. According to the developers, the land to be flooded was empty, a wasteland, Ecologists disagreed, pointing out that where construction crews saw empty space, 
the scientist saw a delicate, precious ecosystem. Nevertheless, the developers were, in some sense, correct. Vatnajökull's highland is about as sparse and desolate as it gets in our sublunary sphere. Kaurahnyukar forced Icelanders to confront a very basic question. What is the value of empty land? Europe's Last Frontier In December 2020, Iceland's parliament debated a bill to designate 40,000 square kilometers of Iceland's interior as a national park. The proposed legislation, debated by parliament until midnight, would have united several nature areas, including Vatnajökull National Park and popular hiking destination Landmannalaugur under one administrative framework, establishing it as Europe's largest protected wilderness. Despite having been touted as a keystone of the current administration's environmental policy and a major part of the coalition agreement between the Left Greens, the Independence Party, and the Progressive Party, the bill floundered in debate and is not expected to pass. Gudlaugur Thorvason, Independence Party MP and current Minister of the Environment, Energy, and Climate, has the Icelandic Highland in his bones. In fact, he tells me he doesn't even know the first time he was in the Highland, as he was too young to remember. All that remains with him is a story his mother told him about a leaky jeep, a river crossing, and an infant Gudlaugur who was made a little too wet for his liking. The Highland National Park and the resistance to it has often been framed as a classic case of urban versus rural. Environmentalist bureaucrats in Reykjavik imposing their plans on the municipalities, who want nothing more than the autonomy to live their lives and use their land as they see fit. Unfortunately, or rather, fortunately, Gvothelegger says, it's not as simple as that. Gvothelegger points to the case of Snifelsnes National Park, Established in 2001, this park has proved tremendously successful, not just from a conservation perspective, but also for the locals. They've been supportive of the park since day one, Kudlaga says. It's a great example of the municipalities and state working together. No one there would ever want to return to how things used to be. The only way forward, according to Kudlaga, is if all parties benefit from conservation and that the municipalities are taken into consideration as well. The Highland National Park may have failed, he tells me, but this is far from the total story of land conservation in Iceland. Iceland has a total of 113 protected areas, giving it one of the highest percentages of legally protected land in the world. Some 30% of Iceland is already protected, he explains, but we haven't worked out a plan for these protected areas. Currently, there is no national framework for protected wilderness areas in Iceland. Notably, this means that different regulations and laws apply to Iceland's three national parks, Vatnajökull, Snæfellsjökull, and Þingvellir. Þingvellir, in particular, rests in a special position, its unique historical and political importance placing it under the administrative umbrella of parliament. For Grødlöger, the next frontier in Icelandic wilderness conservation is the working group recently commissioned by the government, which is compiling a green book on wilderness, land use, and biodiversity in Iceland, to be submitted this autumn. Debates around conservation often devolve into conflicts around deeply entrenched ideological positions. 
on the one hand, the environmentalists who oppose any and all encroachment on undeveloped land, and on the other, those who see Iceland's wilderness as something merely to be exploited. So far, there's been no basis to discuss these things, the minister states. It's important to know what we disagree on. Parks and Identity Yellowstone was established in 1872 by an act of the United States Congress and is widely regarded as the first national park in the world. As American urban centers expanded, and as other natural wonders of the Americas, like Niagara Falls, became increasingly developed and commercialized, Yellowstone was set aside for conservation and recreation. Western Europe largely lacked comparable national parks, but in recently unified or liberated colonial states, the establishment of national parks became a point of pride. Iceland, also a colonial nation at the time, established its first national park at Thinkvetlir in 1928. In Iceland's case, the connection between the establishment of parks and a growing national identity is even stronger than elsewhere, Thinkvetlir being the traditional assembly site for Althinki, Iceland's parliament. Though Thinkvetlir is by no means a wilderness, it shows us that when we choose to set aside land as a park, in addition to whatever good intentions we have, we are also saying something about ourselves. Wilderness only exists in comparison with settled land. To call something a wilderness is a choice we make, to designate it outside our little world of settlement. And if we make it, isn't it our prerogative to unmake it as well? Are wilderness areas simply there for recreation, oversized mountain bike trails and beaches? Is Iceland's highland a form of capital, a resource that ought to be invested in and developed? Maybe wilderness is a vital link in the global ecosystem, a precious store of biodiversity. Or does the highland have nothing to do with us, standing remote at the edge of our maps, the silent negation of our built-up settlements? Seeing Green In 2017, then graduate student and now researcher Yuka Sultanin published findings in his MS thesis that confirmed what many suspected – National parks in Iceland were big business. Yuka's thesis sought to dispel an attitude often heard in government administration, that parks simply incur costs with no tangible benefits. When Yuka sat down and crunched the numbers, he found something remarkable. The economic impact, essentially the return on investment, of Snæfellsjökull National Park was figured to be a staggering 58 to 1. The study compared the economic impact of Snæfellsjökull National Park to the national park system in Finland. In the Finnish context, the parks were found to return a mere 10 to 1 economic impact, including direct spending at the sites, hotel and hostel accommodations, meals at restaurants, travel expenses, jobs created, and other secondary effects. In comparison, Snæfellsjökull was a gold mine, with every krona invested yielding 58 in return. However, Yuka's study also provided a warning. Unmanaged tourism would ultimately decrease the profitability of the national parks, as decreasing quality of experience would lead to less time in the park, less money spent, and ultimately fewer trips to the region and to Iceland. Some 70 to 80% of tourists that come to Iceland cite nature as the primary reason for their visit. 
and should that feeling of solitude, authenticity, and purity diminish, it is unclear whether tourists would still choose to come. Such findings gave an empirical basis for what might be called a third way in conservation, dissolving the old distinction between fussy environmentalists and unsentimental investors. National parks, it seems, can satisfy both. A proponent of such an approach is Minister Grutlöger, who has advocated for profitable climate solutions throughout his political career. There is perhaps a tension embedded within Grutlöger's job title as Minister of Environment, Energy, and Climate. Some might say that the environment and energy stand at odds with one another in a zero-sum game. Any concession to one is a loss to the other. Perhaps the recently renamed ministry is a statement of optimism that these elements might be brought into harmony. Nature for itself, by itself. Climate solutions can be profitable, and conservation can certainly benefit a community. And yet, is there perhaps bad faith behind this optimistic moderation? Can we really have it all? Some environmentalists might say that a power line running through the highland changes the nature of the highland. A hydroelectric dam across a river is not merely a construct of steel and concrete, a pit stop for the river on its way down the land. In harnessing the river for power, for us, we change it, not just in the course of its flow, but at a more fundamental level. The dammed river has become a storehouse, a reserve of energy that stands at the ready, for us, for our use. The dam kills the river that once flowed from time immemorial and replaces it with a battery. As a settler Thorolvur might think of it, to dam a river is to turn even the wilderness into Bikth, another part of the farmstead. One environmentalist sympathetic to such a view is Öyver Önne Magnusdottir, Managing Director of Landvernt, or the Icelandic Environment Association, the oldest and largest such organization in Iceland. Given this pedigree, it is fitting that Landvernt was the birthplace of the Highland National Park Bill. With the Highland National Park on hold, I ask Öyder what's on the horizon for Landvernt. I know it sounds really boring, she begins. I lean in. Little does Öyder realize my interest in well-wrought policy. But the most important thing right now is that we make sure that the decisions we make are professional, and they're taken with the interest of nature and the general public in mind. The tourism industry has exploded over the last decade in Iceland, and with no general framework for development and conservation, it is all too easy for decisions to be made largely in reaction to problems as they arise. Iceland cannot simply develop for the sake of endless growth, Öyder tells me. Already producing more energy per citizen than any other nation, Iceland must consider instead how to use its energy resources more efficiently. The constant growth mindset, Öyder says, runs up against a fundamental problem. We live in a finite world. Still, some development is inevitable. Playing devil's advocate, I mentioned the lava fields between Kaplavik and Reykjavik. These fields are not idyllic woodlands, and the words that come first to most visitors are wasteland, Martian, 
and desolate. And the highland contains many such places, stretching for miles and miles. What exactly is lost when we develop empty land? No such thing as wilderness. I don't know what empty land is, Oether responds. Nobody lives there. But the highland isn't empty. It turns out, unsettled doesn't equate to untouched. We have a lot of desert in the highland, but it wasn't always like that. As a result of sheep grazing and climate change, it's become more desertified. She holds up Thjossover, a region between Hofsjökull Glacier and the Sprenkesandur Desert, as a jewel of conservation. This region is unique in Icelandic ecology, separated from the rest of the highland by glacial rivers. The region is over 600 meters above sea level, Either explains. 50% of all the plants that are found in Iceland are found there. And there are so many flowers, so many different flowers, she says. Besides beautiful and diverse plant life, Thjossover also plays an important role in the global ecosystem, as it serves as a vital breeding ground for many migratory bird species that summer in Iceland. One-third of the entire world population of the pink-footed goose, for example, has its breeding grounds in this little corner of the highland. The highland certainly serves an important role, and there are very good reasons why we should conserve it, both for our own future interests and for the ecosystem more generally. Nevertheless, when it comes down to it, I notice that both Eider, the environmentalist, and Gudlöger, the practical realist, hit a wall when discussing the highland. All of these explanations, justifications, and policies seem to be beside the point. When pressed on the importance of the highland, both hesitate for a moment and wax spiritual in their own ways. The highland is worth money, but also something more. For Grothlöger, it is expressed as a swell of patriotism, bearing a high price in the heart of all Icelanders. For Oyder, it services as something mystical, a connection to a source of power bigger than humanity. You see nobody, and you see no roads, and you see no power lines, you see nothing constructed by the hand of man, she says. And you feel very small. But at the same time, a part of something extremely big. You just know that something is right there. Yoga in the Highland When travelers sit down on an Iceland air flight, they will watch a two-and-a-half-minute safety video starring a young backpacker with a MacBook. Images of airplane safety are juxtaposed with romantic experiences of the landscape. As she fastens her life vest on board the plane, the scene is transfigured into a kayak adventure tour. The safety video could be said to present the tourist ideology, a glimpse into the ideal Icelandic experience. The video description on YouTube asks us, Have you ever camped under the northern lights? Jumped off a waterfall? Hiked to a volcano? The ideal Icelandic experience, according to the video, consists of an individual, alone, having an encounter with nature. This video, seen by nearly every visitor to Iceland, trains us to see the landscape in a certain way. Implicit in it is a set of values, not necessarily wrong, and also a theory of what the wilderness is. 
one theory of many. Locale for recreation, bioreserve, profit center, spiritual sanctuary. The highland is all of these things and none. As I spoke with Othir, she paused, apologizing. But I'm a scientist after all. Björk is much better at talking about these things than me. Well, thank you for that, Eric. Uh, to begin with, uh, why were you interested in writing this piece? Well, certainly the environmental question is evergreen in Iceland. Uh, you know, I mean, in the piece, uh, there's this little statistic, 70 to 80% of tourists, you know, kind of nature is the main thing that's drawing them here. Um you know, I mean, these beautiful pictures of Icelandic nature are something that we all see all the time. This is very much kind of how we think of Iceland. Um, you know, I mean, obviously there is this Highland National Park Bill, which is very important as well. But, you know, I mean, something that I was also gesturing towards in my piece um, is how, yeah, I mean, ultimately... This is a very personal subject for a lot of people. Um, you know, I mean, I also have a lot of memories as a child, um, just spending time in nature here, um, visiting my grandfather's farm, um, the sound of uh, the sound of plover, uh, just kind of these huge open expanses and the sounds and the wind. And all of this. And, you know, I mean, when you've grown up around this, like, how can it not be important? You know? Where was your grandfather's farm? Well, uh, it was out on uh, Kalonas, uh, which is now kind of getting rapidly developed. Uh, you know, I mean, it was just this little kind of weekend uh, getaway for the family. And, um, you know, I mean, uh, kind of back in the day, it was a little bit out in the country and you'd kind of go out there on the weekend to see the horses and everything. Um, I mean, now it seems like every time I kind of visit my family out there, you can kind of see like Mosfet Bayer kind of creeping closer and closer each year. Um, you know, I mean, like that itself is also like a very good image of a lot of these problems actually is uh, this kind of constant expansion of settlements in Iceland and uh, loss of farmland and all of these things. Right. So uh, sitting at the heart of your piece is this question, uh, essentially, like you mentioned in the subtitle, what is the value of empty land? And in our discussion earlier, um, I think both of us agreed that the rationale for conserving empty land quote-unquote empty when it serves as a kind of um, like a breeding ground for animals. Uh, I mean, that's that's the easier case to make. But when it comes to like wasteland, um, lava fields, and, and just empty space sort of that's standing outside of the living world, um, What's the value of those spaces in your mind? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of hard to talk about without getting immediately philosophical. Um, but, you know, I mean, 
a lot of people uh, in the ecology movement and like specifically uh, what's called the deep ecology movement, um, which is influenced by the Norwegian philosopher Arne Ness, um, you know, they would kind of identify a lot of these conservation reasons um, as ultimately anthropocentric, right? So, you know, like we're kind of preserving these natural areas ultimately for us, you know, to kind of prevent some sort of collapse in the biosphere, but ultimately, you know, for some reason that ultimately points back to us. Um, And, you know, what somebody in the deep ecology movement might say um, is that nature actually does have a kind of a right to autonomy in the way that human individuals have. And that, a part of this right to autonomy also consists in a right to be left alone. I mean, like, like just like there are philosophical debates about privacy for individuals, human individuals. Um, and, you know, I mean, this is also something that has been kind of coming up recently in um, just legal battles uh, with kind of Western corporations exploiting, you know, whether it's like the Amazonian jungle or kind of mineral rights in Africa. And there are like a lot of, for instance, indigenous groups that have kind of cited um, traditional ideas about, uh, you know, maybe rivers having something kind of like personhood. Um, And that, you know, maybe it, maybe there's a way to talk about a river having a right to exist or a mountain having a right to exist in a way that's, actually very interesting. Um, And, you know, I mean, all of this obviously kind of falls outside the piece to some extent, but like, these are like really important questions. I mean, like, like, like maybe some of our readers have also seen some of these headlines about, um, I think it's like, uh, I forget the name of the mountain. Is it literally like Sanfet? Where like there are developers that are buying a mountain in, I mean, I think it's Reykjanes. And I mean, really just tearing it down to be shipped off to Germany to be processed. So, I mean, th- there are developers that are kind of buying entire mountains to tear them down. And, you know, I mean, like, like this is like a real question, you know, do, does a mountain have a right to exist in the way that human individuals have a right to exist? And, you know, I mean, I'm not going to pretend like I have the definitive answer to that, but I mean, I think that some of these questions were definitely on my mind as I was writing the piece. Right. And uh, the tension of the piece is um, it exists between our sort of feeling that it's necessary to harness the power of nature, um, striking some kind of or threading some kind of middle road between harnessing the power of nature for our own good as a human community and then preserving the sort of empty space of nature as well, uh, albeit for our own consumption as well. I mean, we want these empty spaces for the sake of our own consumption. We consume uh, the waterfalls and the forests and the nature because it sort of brings us peace and enjoyment. Um, so where do you stand personally on this issue of, of striking a balance between harnessing nature and enjoying it for what it is? <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously that's a pretty big question. Um, it. It is hard to say, right? I mean, um, I don't think that I have one 
big answer that kind of ties all of these things up neatly. Um, I mean, it might be kind of random, uh, but one of the first things that kind of comes to my mind, um, and my background is uh, in history um, and, you know, medieval literature and uh, always been a kind of big reader of the sagas. And, you know, I mean, something that, and, you know, I mean, like modern scholarship has also kind of picked up on some of these maybe like environmental tendencies um, in the medieval Icelandic sagas. And, you know, I mean, if you look at what a medieval Icelandic farm would have been like, um, I think it's really fair to say that, I mean, yes, like there is this uh, really important, you know, kind of universal human distinction between us and nature, between civilization um, and nature. Um, but at the same time, I mean, there's this way in which like the, the boundary between culture and nature was uh, very unstable. It's always kind of threatening to come down, like whether that's like literally a storm blowing away your farmstead. But, you know, I mean, also just like the kind of close proximity uh, in which medieval Icelanders like lived with animals. I mean, just like your farm animals are kind of a part of your household. I mean, like you depend on your animals to keep you alive. And so that's not to say that they're like a part of the human community, but there is maybe a kind of broader community that like, I don't know, natural beings can also be included in, you know, I mean, also just like lots of people have pets and like we love our pets and we love our cats and our dogs and we kind of depend on them in some sense. Uh, like they, like they do something for us and we care for them and it is like a hierarchical relationship. You know, it's like, we're obviously above them in some sense. Um, but it's not totally hierarchical. Like, like they do things for us. Um, and I don't know. I mean, like maybe that's not really getting to the question, but I do think that like there are ways if you kind of look at, you know, just like how have we historically lived with nature and how have we kind of navigated this divide in the past. And I mean, it's definitely clear that like, it's not always been cut in stone either. Like it's like, there's always been some room, um, for us to change nature a bit, but for also like nature and natural beings to kind of be included in our community, in our households and in our farms, uh, and these things. So, you know, I mean, certainly the distinction is a useful one, um, nature and culture. Um, but it's certainly not a totally clean one. Yeah. So, to sort of play devil's advocate um, with the historical experience, with the historical perspective. Uh, you begin the piece with this image of Thorolur Mosterskek demarcating uh, sort of his settled land with uh, presumably a torch. Um, so what would Thorolur Mosterskek, the settler, think of all of this? I imagine that he'd be more concerned with um, pressing matters of survival as opposed to sort of high-flown questions of whether damming a river would be encroaching upon nature or not. He would just take the benefits of the modern power grid over, over any kind of philosophical <laughs> discussion of these matters, right? Well, yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, um, 
certainly uh, life in early Iceland was very much a struggle. Um, nature is not this kind of beautiful, romantic thing that you just kind of look at from your window all the time, right? I mean, like, it, it it's something that you're in conflict with. Um, you know, I mean, uh, one of the really useful conversations that uh, defined this piece uh, that didn't really make it into it uh, but was with um, Anadora Saithosdotir, um, a professor at the University of Iceland. And, you know, I mean, like a part of her research kind of touches on um, the Icelandic relationship to the highland and also how this relationship has changed throughout history. So the highland hasn't always meant the same thing. Um, you know, I mean, clearly the way in which we encounter nature now has, you know, a lot to do with the tourism industry. We've been kind of trained to see certain things in nature and we've been kind of told um, to, yeah, just like behave a certain way when we look at a mountain. <laughs> um, and, you know, clearly uh, a medieval settler would not have had the same categories of thinking about nature uh, as we do now. And so these things change over history and like, like they're not stable. Um, you know, so I mean, yeah, <laughs> to, to kind of think what Thorolver uh, would have thought of all this. I mean, yeah, uh, if you would put a hydroelectric dam on Thorolver's farm, <laughs> I think it'd be pretty happy. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely uh, one perspective to take. <laughs> Um, and also, I, I found just to conclude, the the ending of the piece was interesting. With either um, uh, sort of excusing herself for being merely a scientist and being unable to fully articulate sort of the value of of these empty spaces, and, and gesturing towards her compatriot Björk in this regard, um, uh, you say. That for Euler it surfaces as something mystical, a connection to a source of power bigger than humanity. And quoting her, she says, You see nobody, and you see no roads, and you see no power lines. You see nothing constructed by the hand of man. And you feel very small, but at the same time, a part of something extremely big. There's an interesting tension, and I guess this is sort of coming back to my earlier question of, of the sort of this place empty and desolate being a source of power and um, mysticism and something sort of supernatural beyond the human realm. So to kind of, so for either, I mean, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but I think that like for either, um, you know, like these feelings of kind of, um, a connection to something bigger is definitely something that a lot of visitors to the Highland um, will recognize from their experience there. And, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, obviously it's a little bit tongue in cheek uh, with uh, kind of poking a little bit of fun at the uh, safety video uh, in Iceland air. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I think that's a really great example of, you know, something that's very kind of unstated uh, and it's something that we've all seen uh, coming to Iceland um, and we are kind of being told in a subtle way that there is kind of a way to be with nature. Um, 
And I think it's kind of fair to say that, like, you know, if you kind of read this Iceland Air video, like a text, uh, like we all have <laughs> trained to do in college um, with our good liberal arts educations, um, you know, I mean, I think it's fair to say that, like, ultimately there's something about that nature experience that is ultimately about the self, right? Um, it's about, like, the human individual, and it's about, um, like, you look at nature, you look at a mountain, um, to ultimately bring about a change within yourself, within your mind or spirit or whatever. Um, you know, I think that it's kind of fair to say that, like, there's another way of looking at this that isn't really about the individual and about the self, but it's really about nature. And, like, when we talk about nature with, like, a kind of capital N, it's maybe easy to kind of lapse into the supernatural but I don't, nece- I don't necessarily think it has to be like that. I mean, I think that, like, this kind of immediate contact with the forces of nature, like, it's just, you know, I mean, sure, obviously we live in nature every day in some sense, right? Um, and yet when you are in these unwooded expanses and you just see these mountains with, like, the layers in them and it's like you can see, like, a geological process, like, frozen in time there and – there's a way in which like you catch a glimpse of yeah i mean like this huge large scale process like like you see geology but, but, working in front of you and right. like like i i think that's the kind of like amazing mysticism that like Uther is so kind of fascinated by what what is what if you were to channel Björk, what does she have to say about these issues <laughs> Well, I certainly uh, don't want to put any words in anybody's mouth, but yeah, I mean, well, I, I mean, you know, uh, if 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 we just kind of look at her most recent album, Fosfora, uh, like there's obviously a fascination with nature there. I mean, like the, you know, it's it's a concept album about mushrooms, um, and you know, I mean, like like what's interesting about mushrooms? Well, I mean, I guess in a certain way, like they're kind of uncanny. I mean. Um, like the way that their metabolism works is actually more similar to animals than it is to plants because they eat things basically. Um, so there's something about them that kind of like straddles categories. They're almost like animal and plant. Um, you know, so I think that like those distinctions are really interesting. I mean, like obviously not just for Björk, but for lots of artists, like, like the ways in which, um, boundaries exist but are also crossed um and you know i mean clearly you can kind of say similar things about nature and culture like yes this is like a really useful category for talking about these problems through and yet um it's also very unstable um and yeah you know i mean i think that Björk is really great at kind of asking questions and you know that's kind of what the role of an artist is like, like, you know, like she's not a politician. She doesn't need to be drafting policy and coming up with answers. Uh, she's asking questions, which is also what we're doing here. Yes, we are. <laughs> well, thank you for that, Eric. And you can read Eric's piece unsettled the value of wilderness in the fifth issue of ice and review. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, Iceland's longest-running English-language magazine, focusing on nature, politics, and community. 
Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts.